Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I am Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or Stitcher. So we're going to be talking today about a subject that's been in the news quite a bit, which is trade policy, tariffs, all of that sort of stuff. We have, working with me at R Street, someone who is very knowledgeable on those issues, and that is Clark Packard. And so Clark is joining us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So Clark, it's been a, it's been an eventful week or so. There was news about a week ago that the president was, uh, actually, I, I know exactly when it was. I was flying back from Canada, of all places. Uh, I had just gotten done uh, giving a presentation talking about uh, trade. And I was talking about we may not be able to uh, get a deal worked out on NAFTA because of the Section 232 tariffs. And then on the flight the next morning, there was this press release that the president and Canada and Mexico had all agreed that the United States would lift its tariffs and they would also remove their retaliatory tariffs. So tell us a little bit about that. And then I also want to talk about how that relates to the likelihood of USMCA getting ratified now. But uh, tell us exactly what happened there. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, if you go back to, uh, I guess it was around March of 2018, the U.S. Commerce Department came out with this report that imported steel and aluminum products jeopardized American national security. And the basis of that was pretty thin. Um, but, but the Commerce Department and the administration looking for a pretext to impose tariffs understood that Section 232, which you which you referenced, provides them with a ton of leeway, and it's basically unfettered access to impose tariffs, assuming that the Commerce Department comes back with an affirmative finding. So unsurprisingly, we impose the tariffs, and it hurts a bunch of our allies, it angers a bunch of our allies, a bunch of our allies then impose retaliatory tariffs against American exports. And so, yeah, this has been sort of lingering, this, this problem over the last year. But I think the politics shifted for the president in the sense that Congress made clear that they weren't going to move forward with the USMCA or NAFTA's replacement uh, until the president removed the Section 232 tariffs. And that's basically what happened last week. And then, as you, as you mentioned, Canada and Mexico responded by lifting their tariffs on American exports. So that's sort of where we are right now. What do you think the prospects are now after this change? What do you think the prospects are of USMCA being ratified? I think it's better. You know, it, it's certainly better than it was. Chairman Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, wrote a Wall Street Journal editorial basically saying, we're not going to pass USMCA as long as the steel and aluminum tariffs are in place on Mexico and Canada. So we've removed that. Now the issue is, can the administration and, and Democrats in Congress make some changes sort of on the margin to priorities that the Democrats are demanding, whether that be stricter enforcement on labor rights in, in Mexico, changes to intellectual property protection under what are known as biologics as opposed to pharmaceuticals. It's, it's a technical issue there and some environmental requests that the, that the Democrats are making. So I guess it remains to be seen whether or not the administration is going to make those concessions to Democrats. But my sense is that, yes, 
they will try to get this done. I think that odds are pretty decent that it gets done this year. But there's also a, a bunch of other stuff kind of up in the air. I mean, the, the president was talking about infrastructure, but apparently he walked out of a meeting. And plus the, the Mueller probe and, and a bunch of other things are up in the air right now that, that are sort of clouding the prospects of, of USMCA ratification. But ultimately, I think that we probably got a 50 or 60 percent chance of getting USMCA done this year. Right. And the meeting that you just mentioned, I think the, 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 the headlines I saw was that Trump is now saying that he's not going to work with the Democrats at all on any legislation as long as there's any probes. And that doesn't seem likely that all the probes are going to end at this point. No. I, I And I think that Democrats, I, I think they have a political incentive to sort of drag this out. And the other thing I would mention, and I've written this in the past, is I think USMCA has to get done this year 2019, calendar year 2019, because it's almost impossible to get a complicated trade agreement done during an election year. And so I think that the political dynamics are such that they have to happen this year. And sort of the overarching question to me is what Democrats do with respect to investigating the president. I would also say that that the issue of China, which I assume that we'll talk about later, uh, has really sucked up a lot of the oxygen in the trade conversation right now. But yeah, overall, I mean, again, I would I would suggest that probably 50 to 60 percent likelihood of passage this year. So walk us through what we got out of this entire process. You know, as you mentioned, we've sort of harmed the, uh, the longstanding relationship we have with allies like Canada. Surely we got something out of that entire process. What did we get? Uh, <laughs> I think the president got talking points um, and, and will win plaudits from steel and aluminum factory workers uh, in states he needs to carry in 2020. But overall, I mean, I think that this was a pretty self-destructive exercise that I guess the Peterson Institute for International Economics has estimated that we've gained like, I don't know, something like two or three thousand jobs in the steel and aluminum industry domestically at a cost of about six to seven hundred thousand dollars. But that doesn't include, you know, the jobs that were lost because of declining market access abroad because of retaliatory tariffs. And then the sort of softer things that are that are harder to measure, but the breakdown in trust uh, between the United States and Canada, between the United States and Mexico and its allies in Europe. So, yeah, you can't draw a ton of, of positive conclusions about this other than, you know, a few thousand factory jobs among sort of blue collar workers that the president is going to try to appeal to in 2020. Right. And I think that a lot of the negotiations focused on the Canadian dairy market. And I think that Scott Linscombe has estimated that Canada opened up their dairy market by a whopping 0.34% more than it would have been open under TPP if we had stayed under that agreement. Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, it's certainly it's better than nothing. But yeah, look, this whole exercise of renegotiating NAFTA into the USMCA to me was a, a tremendous waste of time and energy and effort because we had already renegotiated the NAFTA under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And right now, U.S. producers and exporters are really struggling to reach Asian markets because the other countries in the TPP move forward without the United States. And so 
you know, I, I think that a lot of farmers and ranchers are, are rightly upset and kind of looking around and saying, wait a second, you know, we spent all this time to basically tread water on NAFTA, essentially agriculture products traded duty free anyway, under NAFTA. And so what exactly did we get? And in, in, in retrospect, I don't think it's a whole lot. And we ultimately lost out on market access that had already been negotiated under the TPP. Well, and even now that the president is saying that he's going to waive these Section 232 national security tariffs on Canada and, and Mexico for their steel and aluminum imports, we're not done with Section 232 because the recent talk that also came out, I think, on uh, this past Friday, the president basically agrees with himself. The president agrees with the, his own Commerce Department that imported automobiles are a national security threat and that he is considering imposing tariffs on imported automobiles. What's the basis of of declaring automobiles a national security threat? And what do you think the likelihood is, is that we'll actually see some tariffs on uh, foreign automobile imports? So I don't think there's any basis for national security tariffs on on autos and auto parts. Sean Donnan, the great trade reporter for Bloomberg, has called these tariffs a tariff without a constituency. And I think that's exactly right that nobody, not even the domestic auto industry, is, is clamoring for these things. It's basically only the White House. And so essentially what they're arguing is that, well, they've argued various things at, at different points, but one of their arguments is we have a huge trade imbalance on autos and, and it's hurting our manufacturing base. And so we need to sort of rejuvenate American auto manufacturing, never mind that it's pretty high right now. It's been moving in the right direction. But there's that argument. There's just the broader argument about trade deficits and, and being reliant on, on imports. I don't think that that's you know, a sound basis to be pushing forward with this. I mean, you're really going to make the United States an inhospitable place for capital to flow. And then in terms of whether or not it's likely these things will, will come down, I think that remains to be seen, obviously. You know, the White House wants to use these things as leverage. We're about to start negotiating a free trade agreement with Japan, again, a former member or a member, current member, I guess, of the TPP. And we're going to start negotiating with Europe. And so the president views these tariffs and the threat of auto tariffs as giving him leverage to increase market access for American exports in both Europe and Japan. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I'm always skeptical of negotiating at the end of a, of a gun because we know how to negotiate trade agreements, right? Throughout history, we've negotiated 14 rounds, multilateral rounds at, at the WTO and before that, the GATT. Uh, we have 20 countries with whom we have free trade agreements. So we know how to do this without resorting to, to massive threats. But this seems to be the president's modus operandi. Right. But and he's this great negotiator with the whole art of the deal. So explain to me what the precedential value is of the Canada and the Mexico negotiations. And what I mean by that is we went into these negotiations. We essentially, you know, with lots of bluster and bullying of an ally, we did impose tariffs for a while. But ultimately, we conceded everything, I think. I mean, there's not much that's really changed other than some modernization of NAFTA. If you're Japan, if you're the EU, if you're China. What do you take away from all, you know, of our negotiating tactics and sort of the end result of the way we handled an ally like Canada? Well, it's a little tough to draw a distinction there, if only because we don't currently have a free trade agreement with 
either the EU or Japan. So the issue with Canada and Mexico under under the NAFTA is essentially that this USMCA is about 95% the same as NAFTA. And so, yeah, you make some changes around the margin and then you've dodged a bullet. The president can claim victory. But essentially the status quo commercial relationship, which was pretty good between the three countries, is going to basically be stay intact, essentially unchanged. It's not quite the same, again, with the EU and Japan, just because the US doesn't have free trade agreements and and everything between them currently is traded under WTO rules, uh, which provide a little higher tariffs, provide a a slightly different form of dispute settlement. But ultimately, you know, the WTO is sort of the catch all. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that an FTA with the EU and Japan is the right idea, but our trading partners have to be looking at, at what lessons they can draw from you know the, the USMCA negotiations. And I think more than anything, they'll probably take away that it's more about style than substance. And the president can go out and claim victory, give him some high level wins that he can go out and sell. But ultimately, you're not going to fundamentally change the trade relationship, really. Uh, on that point, you know, this is something that's come up several times. And I think I saw is that Mark Thiessen was making some some similar point uh, like this recently is, is this notion that at its core, Donald Trump is really a free trader and that we, we just have to go through this process and it may be painful, but ultimately we have to have the tariffs. We have to have these negotiating tariffs to get to free trade. Do you think that this is all some type of ploy or do you think that Donald Trump at his core is a tariff guy like I think he's described himself? Do you think he believes in protectionism or do you think this is all really just to get us better, freer trade? Um, I think it's time we start taking the president at his word that he is a tariff man. Um, (laughs) The the president has imposed a whole host of tariffs and the only tariffs at this point that have been lifted or you know, like we, we impose steel and aluminum tariffs. Last year, we lifted those on Mexico and Canada, and we swapped the tariffs out for a quota with South Korea. I think that ultimately the president is a protectionist. I think he wants to really reinvigorate the idea of being reinvigorating domestic manufacturing uprooting supply chains, forcing that to be reshored in the United States. But ultimately, it kind of depends on who he's talking to, right? So a couple of famous story is, I don't know, 18 months ago, he was talking to Ben Sass in the Oval Office. And, and he basically said, no, 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 you don't understand. He's making kind of the, the same argument that Mark Thiessen made. You don't understand. I'm, I'm using tariffs as leverage. But ultimately, I'm a free trader. I, I'm very skeptical of that. I think the one thing that disciplines the president is the financial markets and capital markets, how they react. But I, I think that if you could separate that out or if he's willing to tolerate a bunch of pain, and it seems like maybe we are with respect to China in particular, I do think that the president has a very misguided, old school understanding of, of how trade flows work. He's so focused on misguided statistics like trade deficits. So yeah, I, again, I, I think he's completely outside of, of the, the norm, basically since President Hoover, right? The last 13 presidents have all been free traders by and large, and that, that cuts across party lines. But Donald Trump really harkens back to sort of the pre-Smoot-Hawley mercantilist ideas that exports are great and imports are terrible. 
and that trade in general is is not a good thing for the United States. And again, I think that's a completely misguided idea. Well, and I and I think he's been pretty consistent on that because there is a famous interview he did with Playboy. Um, in the early 90s. And they asked him at the time, I mean, there are already these notions out there about, you know, he might run for president. And this is early 90s. They asked the question, what would you do in your first day of, of being president? And his response is, I would immediately put tariffs on automobiles from Germany and Japan. So if this was a con, it was certainly a long con. Yeah, you're right. He's been talking about how Various countries are ripping us off and taking advantage of us for 30 years, right? I mean, like you mentioned, the early 90s, he's talking about Japan. You can go back into like 88, 87, same sort of rhetoric with Japan, except now he's applying that to China and Mexico and the, the EU and insert name of country. But yeah, it's, it's the same sort of victimhood mentality that he has almost perfected in many ways. All right. Well, let's talk about China. So because that's uh, there have been some big moves there recently. And there are folks, I think, who are more sympathetic to having an adversarial trade relationship to China than to, you know, folks like Canada, or the EU, which are viewed more as allies rather than, you know, strategic competitors or other things. So what's going on with China? And, you know, how is that different, if at all, from these other moves with the Canada, Mexico, and or Europe or Japan or things like that? Yeah, I I think that that's exactly right. I think that you can sort of bifurcate the overall trade conversation between sort of pretty standard, straightforward U.S. allies and and the trading relationship there between, you know, the U.S. and Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, the U.S. and the EU, and then the issue of China. I'm of the opinion that the U.S.-China relationship is the most important strategic relationship in the the 21st century. We need to get it right. But it's, it's much bigger, right, than just trade policy. It's about the intersection between trade, national security, technology. So yeah, I, I think that you're right that people are more sympathetic to the the president's posture towards China. I, I will say there's by and large, and I'm I'm a little frustrated by it, but but yeah, there's a a really hawkish consensus around Washington, DC about China and the the need to confront them. And the argument is that they engage in you know, certain predatory trade practices, particularly with respect to abusing intellectual property, sort of cyber hacking into American commercial networks, uh, stealing commercial secrets, forcing American companies, if they want to do business in China, to find a joint venture partner in China to then turn over information to. And then, you know, in, in China, there's not such a strong sort of dividing line between the public and the private sectors. So that if you form a joint venture with a Chinese partner, you don't know whether or not that joint venture partner is turning over trade secrets, intellectual property, technology, et cetera, et cetera, to the the Communist Party in the the central government in Beijing. So yeah, look, the United States has very legitimate complaints about how China engages in trade policy. But I, again, I'm skeptical that tariffs will work. And I think that a lot of the, the complaints about China are blown out of proportion. And they're sort of a pretext for, in my opinion, racism, bigotry. And so it, it's tough to kind of separate out the, the legitimate criticisms of China from the illegitimate criticisms of China. So tell us what's so wrong with tariffs as a response? 
I mean, look, there were two recent studies done by high quality academic institutions. One was the New York Fed, basically saying that our experiment in tariffs over 2018 resulted in a loss of about $1.4 billion a, a month in GDP in the United States. And essentially 100% of the cost of the tariff was borne on the American side, whether that's the importer of record or consumers paying higher prices. And essentially none of the, the, the cost was borne by China or other trading partners. So, you know, when the president goes out and says, well, look, these tariffs are being paid by China and it's, it's raising our GDP. I mean, that's just, it's factually inaccurate. Um, and so I just, I, not only are they destructive in, in the sense that it's just a regressive sales tax levied at the border, but it also alienates allies and they're not effective tools to really manage these problems that I laid out with China. I'm very skeptical that China is going to just all of a sudden come to the negotiating table and make a whole host of concessions and fundamentally transform its economy simply because the president decided to impose tariffs and, and charge American consumers more for Chinese products. I, and I think the, the current status quo, the kind of back and forth between Washington and Beijing sort of bears that out, that, that they're not clamoring um, for some sort of deal and they're willing to, to tolerate some pain here. I'm sure this happens to you, but if I'm, you know, if I'm tweeting something or if I'm speaking in public about, uh, you know, the, the problems with tariffs, that tariffs are ultimately uh, being borne by uh, U.S. consumers, then I immediately get back some response. Well, you, you know, you just don't care that China's ripping us off. And what would you do? So right. there's the question for you. Um, what would you do? So I think the, the first thing we need to understand is that as China continues to rise and become more powerful, there will inevitably be a lot of friction between the two countries. I don't think that we're going to have one sort of final solution to U.S.-China commercial problems and that all of a sudden we sign some deal and all's rosy between the two countries. But I think there are a series of measures that the United States can take that will exert some influence on the margins and how China sort of engages in commerce in the 21st century. For instance, I have said that, that the United States should look at rejoining the TPP. The biggest beneficiary of, of the United States' ill-conceived ideas about the TPP and the withdrawal from the TPP was Beijing. They were so ecstatic when the United States sort of walked away from its traditional role as, as the leader in commerce in the Pacific. And so, again, that would be an, a one type of tool that the United States could use to start to influence how China engages in commerce and whether or not we can raise the, the standards of China's commercial practices. I've also been open about the use, and I testified about this at the United States Trade Representative. I think there's plenty of avenues to discipline China through the World Trade Organization. Now, I will be the first to admit that that's not super popular saying that we're going to rely on a court system essentially in Geneva, Switzerland to discipline fundamental business practices in Beijing. But if you actually look at the data, China has an okay record of complying with adverse decisions at the WTO. I think that we need to, rather than doing these sort of ad hoc talks with China, we should consider the idea of a longer term bilateral investment treaty or sitting down across the table over a two to three year long period and saying, okay, let's negotiate a trade agreement. Now, again, that's not super popular, 
But ultimately, I think those types of tools will be more effective than simply levying a regressive sales tax at the border. Right. And doesn't, you know, back to the whole negotiations with Canada and Mexico and such. And I think we've had a similar issue dealing with NATO is that we, we, we keep threatening to pull out of all these, bio, you know, these multilateral agreements and saying that we want to have, you know, all these bilateral agreements and we're sort of dividing our own allies, in addition to just TPP, by disrupting our relationships with allies like Canada, with the EU, it seems like we're playing a weaker hand than if we were actually trying to confront China together in a multilateral fashion. I think that's exactly right. I think the the broader point, rather than these specific tools, is that the United States needs allies. It's only through allies that we can exert the type of pressure necessary to hopefully discipline China and encourage it to raise its own commercial standards. And like you've mentioned, we have spent, instead of building a large coalition to put pressure on Beijing, we've spent the last year and a half alienating the exact people and countries we need to be reliant on right now. And just anecdotally, I've spent the last 18 months, I've talked to commercial diplomats and politicians from China uh, in, in Switzerland, at the WTO, Germany. And there's a real sense that the United States is squandering a really great opportunity because all these countries share the same concerns. They all engage in sort of what, what we think of as Western capitalist commercial practices, right? And so they agree that, that China abuses intellectual property. It forces their firms to hand over intellectual property and, and trade secrets and all of that. So there was a real opportunity for the world to unite around this and put pressure on China. But but the president, Mr. Transactional, bilateral, transactional guy, tells Macron, for instance, in, in the Oval Office that, no, I don't want your help in dealing with China. This is, quote, my trade agreement. In other words, he's not thinking about this in terms of how do you fundamentally transform China's economy and into a market-oriented or push it in a market-oriented direction, he's thinking of this in, in a total transactional nature such that like he can convince China to purchase more American autos or American soybeans or American liquefied natural gas and Boeing. But simply buying more stuff from the United States isn't going to change how China has sort of fueled its own rise, which is potentially, you know, through theft and, and really dubious commercial practices. And that makes me sort of think that this guy isn't the right guy to be handling a pretty delicate situation. Uh, so I have a question, and, and maybe this is a little far afield. Um, but, you know, the U.S. recently took action restricting the Chinese tech company Huawei. And this has had, of course, a number of different repercussions. Other companies, I think, now are announcing that they're not going to do business with them anymore or cutting ties or whatever. Do you have a perspective on that? I know that that, you know, uh, the administration has justified a lot of its trade-related moves on national security grounds, often with a, you know, tenuous basis, you know, just as an outsider, it seems like this might have more of a basis, I don't know. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is a really good question. And ultimately, I think that this type of issue and, and sort of at the nexus, again, between trade, national security and technology is really the next front in this trade battle. You know, Nobody really thinks about China making chairs as a, as a real threat to the long-term 
stability of the United States. But the United States really does command the upper echelon of artificial intelligence and, and technology. And Huawei is essentially their version of Apple. It's their largest technology company. It's ubiquitous, I guess, over there. So yeah, I, I think that this is the next front. Um, this has the potential to spiral out of control in a way that I don't think that a trade war with tariffs on basic widgets um, would, in the sense that, like, you know, Xi Jinping has made China 2025, it's their industrial policy goal to sort of dominate the commanding heights of technology by the year 2025. And Huawei is, is maybe their biggest company that can sort of compete with American Western companies in, in that sphere. So yeah, this is a huge deal. And it does have a national security nexus. So I'm, I'm more sympathetic here. But I, I wish that it were someone other than this administration making this claim, I, I would have more faith that it's going to be handled the right way. I think I went on TV on Monday and I talked about this. And what I said was I wouldn't be surprised if China responds by withholding exports of rare earth metals that the United States needs for both commercial and military applications in retaliation for the Huawei issue. My hope is that we can somehow cooler heads will prevail. But it seems right now that the United States is having a real scattershot approach to dealing with China as opposed to what I think is needed is more of a holistic whole of government approach where, you know, there's a broad strategy and it, there are various components that involve trade and, and the Defense Department and Treasury, all sort of working in concert. But right now it's it's open season on hitting China. And I just I, I'm skeptical that this is going to end uh, in a positive way for the United States. So in closing, Clark, what's it like to work with Josiah? <laughs> um, no, it's great. And I, I say that because he's in Austin and I'm in Washington, D.C. So I don't have to be in <laughs> no, no, I, obviously a, a valued member of, of our team. I share an office with his energy department colleague, Bill Murray. Um, but but yeah, you know, I Josiah, you're up what three or four times a year, uh, something like that. And let me let me say this. Yeah, uh, I know the question was for Clark, not for me. But let me say this as just a plug, uh, both for Clark and for R Street, which is you know initially Clark was in a kind of exclusively government affairs type role. Uh, you know, he's not in a policy role. Was was helping the energy policy team, the other policy team, work with folks on the Hill. But, you know, one thing that our street is pretty good about is letting, you know, folks come in regardless of their role in the organization, even if it's not a policy role, if they have a policy issue or something that they want to work on, you know, there's there's freedom to do that. And Clark has really kind of taken that to the next level to the extent that it, we didn't really work on trade uh, until he took it on, you know, aside from a few, you know, minor, minor type things. And uh, so, you know, it, it's really kind of impressive, both in terms of uh, what the organization allows, and then also what you've been able to do in that role. I think it's, it's served us pretty well. Well, thanks. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I had been working on trade at the National Taxpayers Union where I was before I came to R Street. And before that, I, you know, I worked for Governor Haley in South Carolina, and I did some stuff for her on trade and looking at export markets and advising her on where you know where she should be trying to to drum up interest in, in investing in South Carolina. But you know, I, I sort of cut my teeth as a 
financial services and securities lawyer for a couple of years. I was in private practice. And then I, you know, I, I moved to, to Washington after I worked for Governor Haley, uh, went to the National Taxpayers Union. We worked really hard on Trade Promotion Authority in 2015, uh, and then the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2015 and 16. Um, and so when I came, when R Street recruited me to come, I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, to help uh, do some government affairs lobbying type stuff. But ultimately, you know, I've, I've sort of cut my teeth professionally in Washington in the trade space. And yeah, like you said, R Street has been uh, hospitable to that. And, you know, I've been able to grow this portfolio over the last two years. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm obviously really thankful for the opportunity that R Street gave me. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs>